Good morning, family. How's everybody feeling this morning? It's good to be here with you in the house of the Lord. God is good. This morning, we are going to open up to Luke chapter 15. We're going to jump in there and, um, in a sense, actually uh, continue where we left off last week. Last week, we were going through Luke chapter 14. Um, But you know something? Before we do, um, oh, that's right. Before I forget this, um, I wanted to make this announcement. Um, This past Thursday, just a few days ago, um, those of you who may know George Triplett, um, who years ago was a, a longtime uh, leader in the church here, like one of the elders. Um, his wife uh, took a tragic fall and ended up hurting, injuring her head and actually went to be with the Lord uh, just a few days ago. Uh, her name is Lynn, Lynn Triplett. So we want to keep uh, George uh, and the rest of the family in prayer. For anyone who is interested, um, they are having visiting hours and a service uh, tomorrow. It's tomorrow at the Connors Funeral Home at 55 West Main Road. Um, Visiting hours are at 11, and the service starts at 1 for anyone that would want to go and um, kind of pay respects and, and bless the family in that way. So um, let's take a moment to pray for George as well as the rest of the family, and really just to, to also pray for uh, this morning that the Lord would speak to us. So Lord, um, I thank you so much that you are steadfast and that you are good. I thank you, Father, that you see us through each and every season of life. I thank you that you don't just see us through it and help us to get through, but you are the, actually the one who goes before us, Lord. You see all things long before they transpire before our eyes. You know what's coming. You know what we need to prepare, and you prepare us fully. So we trust you in that. I pray that you will be with George in this time. I pray that the supernatural comfort from your Holy Spirit would be within him even now. That, Father, even, even with the, the loss of her physical presence, that he would be rejoicing that she is now at peace with you and now just waiting for him to now come and join her there. Please bless the rest of their children and all their family, Lord God, in this time. And I thank you, Father, for your word which you have given us. I thank you, Lord, that you, you don't withhold from us who you are, but rather you, you are um, eager to reveal your character. You are eager to show us who you are. So, Lord, let our eyes not be veiled from that revelation, but let our eyes be open, Lord God, to understand you and see you just plainly for who you show us to be. Let us, as we read the scripture, let the words jump off the page and just become embedded within our spirit so that we understand you. We don't overcomplicate something that you've made so simple. But let us just take hold of the simple gospel of a loving God who has come down on our behalf to to reunite us with yourself. We love you in this place, and we trust you. So bring us closer, we pray, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So last week, um, just to kind of catch up, those who may have not been uh, here or for those who were dozing during it, uh, (laughs) uh, Luke chapter 14, we talked about the great banquet master. So it was about this guy who, it was a parable that Jesus was teaching about a man who decided to put on a feast and invite people to it, who accepted the invitation, but then when the day came, the day of the event, they rejected it, they didn't show up. And so he sent instead his servants out into the streets and he said, invite anyone who will come. Go out into the streets, he said, invite the lame, invite the sick. I don't know what's going on with this earpiece today. 
He said, invite any who, who have come. I've made all these preparations and I'm not letting it go to waste. My table will be full. My house will be full of joy and rejoicing. So go and invite them. So some people accepted the invitation. Others rejected it. But what we learned from this is this. He gave out this invitation, but not all accepted it, received it. Many rejected. And so we look at the principle that it taught us is this, is that giving and receiving, what it really does, it's, it's not about the gift so much as it is about the connection that happens between the giver and the receiver. The Lord wants us together, and giving and receiving is a way that we bond, that we connect together. So Jesus goes on from this story, and he actually talks about the cost of being disciple, a disciple, what is involved in that, how it's important to count the cost, to know what we're getting into before we take steps closer. And then he leads us into Luke chapter 15, where we're going to pick up today. I'm going to read just a few verses from that, starting in verse 20. And it says this. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. This is the parable, what's often known as the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son, as some people call it. Has anyone in this room ever suffered from like chronic losing things, misplacing things? All right, yeah, I'm not the only one. Okay, good. I don't know how many times a week it happens where I will go to grab something that I had put down and I know exactly where I placed it, but when I go to that place, it's magically disappeared. Now, we have a house full of kids, so that kind of helps in that process. It just happened a couple days ago. I put one of our electronic devices plugged into the wall, and so I went to get it a few hours later, and not only was it missing, completely gone, nowhere in the vicinity, but somebody else's phone was plugged into it, of course. Like, oh, that just gets to you. <laughs> That's almost as bad as like going to the freezer where you know you left that half a gallon of ice cream just, just for tonight, and you went and looked for it, and it's gone. And I'm like, honey, where's the ice cream? I just left here. And then she reminds me two hours ago, I finished it off. <laughs> but there's something about losing something, especially when you are the one who placed it down and you know exactly where you put it, you know where it belongs, and it's not in that place. There's something about that that just, oh, it's so frustrating. And so what does it drive you to do? Either one, get frustrated and just say, forget it, and go find something else or get another one, or to the point of like, all right, you just start digging for that thing. Like, I'm going to find this wherever, I'm, and I'm going to find the culprit too, and they're going to pay. <laughs> There's something about this, having something lost, it just gets under your skin, and it gets, it gets your attention, and everything else kind of gets put to the back seat for a few minutes because you, you had this whole plan, this agenda, and instead of on your way there grabbing what you needed, you have to stop. That all goes on hold because you need this thing before you can go any further, which is interesting because as Jesus talks about these stories we're going to get into, that's exactly what happens. Something goes missing and everything else gets put on hold. 
until that thing that was missing gets found once again. So before we jump into the story and the dynamics that are going on here, we have to understand the audience. Like, who is Jesus talking to? What's going on here? See, in verse 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15, it says this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. See, so by now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he, he has a way of bringing people together. Ever since his, right, his, his first ministry on earth, he's always had a variety of people gathering from all different walks of life, all different social statuses, all different demographics coming together to hear him. People from beggars on the side of the street, sick and lame people, um, religious leaders, scholars, government employees, tax collectors, right? All of these people are coming to hear, like, what's going on? Something is different about Jesus. Something's not, this guy's not normal. Something's happening here. So I, I want to know what's going on. He always had a way of bringing all of these different de- demographics together in one close-knit place. And as we very well know in the United States, any time that you bring people from all different socioeconomic statuses, from all different cultures, from all different races, and bring them together in one place, things can get a little dicey real quick. All of a sudden, levels of tension can rise, and all it takes is one little spark and something explodes and it blows up. So here's what we see happening in in Luke chapter 15. The Pharisees and the teachers of law are listening to Jesus, and now he's gathering all these other people and these people that are sick, that were, if, you're, if you're sick, you're seen as under a curse, you're under judgment. So sick mean, is essentially you're a sinner. And they're having these tax collectors come. And, and this is raising the eyebrows saying, well, what's going on with these people? So it actually gets to the point where they're actually judging Jesus for now welcoming them and letting them sit amongst the crowd. Because the Pharisees were condemning the sinners, and that's what caught Jesus' attention which is crazy to think it's the Pharisees that were condemning the sinners in their midst. And here now, like thousands of years later, we're doing the exact same thing. We're still condemning sinners. We look at people and we we judge their actions, even including ourselves. We judge our own actions. And then we put demands upon ourselves to to rectify what we've done wrong to try to earn our way back to, to Jesus. And this is... This is not, that's not God's way. That's not what he values. That's not what he wants from us. He just wants us. Nothing from us. He just wants us. He has a different value system than we do. And these stories that we're going to jump into today are what he uses to show us what he really cares about. See, it's not the same things that we care about, and it's often not the things that we think he cares about. See, when we look at the face value of things, it's easy to make a judgment call on what or who is right or wrong. Take these tax collectors, for instance. These tax collectors that are sitting in the midst of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and whatnot. What's happening here is these tax collectors are working for the Roman government to collect the taxes. Now, the Roman government at the time was a world power. They were dominating the entire world. And what they would do is they would go from city to city, 
from nation to nation, and they would overrun them. They would take, by sheer force, they would overtake these cities and these nations. They would um, kill some of the people to show their dominance and their power and get to get the, the city to submit. They would um, kill the men, have their way with the women and children, and then they would come in and just set up shop, set up a government office in the place, and then rule over that city. So this is what they were doing. And these tax collectors were people from Israel, they were Jews, that were now collecting money from the people that had just been subjected to the power of Rome. They're collecting money on behalf of Rome to now give it to the government that just wiped them out. And not only were they working for that, but they were also taking their own income. Like, they were making a livelihood, and many of them were extremely wealthy, because when they're going to collect, oh, Rome wants 10, 10%, they're going and they're collecting 13 15%. So they make their own cut out of what they're taking from these people. Tax collectors were hated. They were seen as wicked, because they now were on the side of the oppressors. They were, they were traitors to their own people. This is what they were seen as. They were socially unacceptable because of the decisions that they had made to support that Roman government. And now the sick and the lame people that were coming, it was a common view, even by Jesus' own disciples, that when you were, if, if you had someone who was blind or sick or lame in any way, that was not just some kind of natural thing, like, hey, it, it's, it's the world, it's an imperfect place, it happens. No, if you were subjected to some kind of sickness, that's because you were under judgment. You were living in sin. Think about Job and the story of Job. His, sin, his, his friends were insistent that he had sinned, and that's why his family came upon judgment. So now all of these sinners now, all of these sick people would come around Jesus, and every, all of the other acceptable people, the Pharisees, the ones who were higher in status in the, in the uh, community, were saying, what are these people doing here, and why is he allowing them to sit in our midst. See, for Jesus to accept these people, all of these different groups of people, would appear to take the position against Jews, against his own people, and against God. This is what the Pharisees would see when they see Jesus accepting people. Jesus is accepting, Jesus is taking a stance against Jews. We're the, God's chosen people. And not only that, against God. God is judging them. Who are you to accept them? So this is, this is mind-baffling to the Pharisees who are watching this happen. But when we look at Jesus with our own value systems, we should expect to get thrown. At some point along the way, we should expect to be shocked and, and maybe even offended by what he shows us and what he finds important. See, we know that the Scripture tells us that God sees us differently than we see one another. He doesn't look at things the way that we do. And so why should we expect him to agree with the opinions that we hold when those opinions are based upon what we see? We're looking at something different than what he's looking at. So we now need to adapt to what he finds important, to what he finds significant, because that's truly the significant thing. So he spent his years of ministry redefining value. What's actually important in life? And how do we go after that thing? 
See, all they, they knew was the law. That's all they were familiar with. And so there they were people that they spent their entire lives committed to the law, knowing that law, practicing that law, making up new laws to honor the original law and make sure that safeguard and it's protected. And this is all that they knew. This is their worship to God just by these external things of what that they could do. But they were so captivated by the law itself, they missed out on the heart behind the law. See, the law was going somewhere. The law was pointing to something. This is why the scriptures tell us that Jesus was a fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to break any laws, but he was the very fulfillment of it. So he demonstrated the heart, the character of God. What is this law all about? What's showing us who God is? And when Jesus arrived, now they see God in human flesh, and they say, wait, I I can't make the connection. As insistent as he was between saying, no, no, you were just looking at letters on a page, but this is what letters look like in a human flesh. This is God. This is love. Love is the driver of the law. But they couldn't make that connection. Even after his years of insistently telling them again and again, this, no, this is what is important. They couldn't grasp it. So here in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is is trying to illustrate this point and send this home in in a way that they can grasp it. And he tells three stories. He tells a story about what we know as the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then finally the lost son. It's interesting that we call these all these stories about lostness when really it's all about being reintegrated. It's about being restored. These stories are about restoration, not about lostness. But this is this is what we put on it. Which, speak, which shows a lot to the way that we see things. What's important? Oh, he's lost. No, no, no. He's the one that was restored. No, he's the one that was found. He's not the one that went missing. So just to go through it and not to read through every single verse in Luke chapter 15, I'll quickly summarize. Um, the lost sheep, it says that there was, there was a shepherd who had 100 sheep, and one of the sheep went missing. It wandered off and got lost. And it says that he left the 99 to go and seek out that one. And when he found him, he brought him back. And he, it says he called his neighbors and his friends together to rejoice with him because they found the one sheep. I like this because that sheep is something that's moving. It's constantly, it's, it's a moving target. And he was chasing down this moving target. And who knows where this thing was, where it was an hour ago is not where it's going to be right now in this moment. It's constantly moving. But he's insistent to find that thing. He's not going to go anywhere or take the other, nine any, other 99 anywhere until he has 100, the complete set. And then the coin And then in the lost coin, it says that there was a woman who had 10 pieces of silver, and she lost one. But then she lit a lamp and swept through the entire house until she found that one coin. And when she did, again, she calls together her friends and her neighbors to rejoice. And Jesus said, this is the kind of rejoicing that is in heaven when one person repents. This is the kind of rejoicing in heaven that that there is. This woman, I love what it says, that she lit a lamp and swept through the house. In other words, she lost this thing, and when she realized it, she didn't, she didn't search until dark or wait until the next day. Like She's searching night and day. She lit a lamp. She was not stopping to search until it was found. This is the character of our God. He is chasing us down. 
He is chasing down his people out of love because they've wandered off and he, we belong together. Remember the, the scripture where Jesus is talking, he says, oh, how, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to bring you together like a mother hen gathers her chicks. We belong together. And these parables are illustrating that point. He wants us together. He wants us whole. So both of those two first two stories uh, show that once they've found what has been lost and it's now restored, there is reason to rejoice. And this rejoicing is what happens in heaven as we return and the Lord finds us and brings us to the place that we belong. And here's the interesting thing. Both, both the sheep and the coin stories are relatable to the audience, to the people that he's talking to. Like they understand the concept of value of like, okay, yeah, a, a sheep has value. So if that goes missing, you're going to want to chase that thing down and go get it. Even this woman, it's just one piece of silver, but all she had was 10. And so she's going to go find that thing. They can understand this concept of, I need to go get this because this is important. This is value. So they're hearing the story and saying, okay, I can grasp it. Yep. And he goes onto the coin. Yep. I can grasp it. And then all of a sudden he moves to this story about the prodigal son. And this, this is the one that was no longer relatable or understandable, but this now is all of a sudden where it became a shock for them to hear this. He takes the principle that he had described in those first two stories, that they agreed with the principle, but now he applies it to human relationships. And that's where things are not agreeable with that audience. They're saying, well, well now, wait a second now. That's, that's value, that's possessions, that's important. But now you're talking about someone who was rejected, someone who is an outcast. Now you're saying, what, what's happening here? They're shocked. See, I think this is interesting because Jesus is taking this approach to kind of like walk them along to this place where he's trying to get them to go. I think of um, this uh, method that Dale Carnegie used to get people to agree with him. What, they, what he would do is this. He would say, it's, a, it's all about, hey, baby girl, she's so happy. Wow. <laughs> she's just so happy to be here. All right, I'll keep talking about it, baby. <laughs> so Dale Carnegie had this method, this, this theory of like, hey, if you want somebody to agree with you and they have a different point of view, don't start where you're on different terms. Don't start on the place where you, are, you think this and they think something else. You're already at odds. Start back. Come on, back to the place where you are on common ground and talk about this and get them to say, yes, yes, okay, we agree on this. Take them a little further. Yes, yes. Because the psychology behind this is it, when, when we're working with someone and we're agreeing with them, we're saying yes. Psychologically, we want to keep saying yes. There's something that has to click inside of us before we say no, because we're already moving in that direction. There's momentum there. It's happening. And so Jesus is almost seeming to, to use this kind of Dale Carnegie method of getting people to agree with you long before Dale Carnegie was ever born. <laughs> But he's saying, yeah, look, at the, look at the lost sheep. Don't you see that there's value in finding that? Okay, yeah, yeah. Look at this woman with, with only 10 coins and she lost one. This, isn't this important? Isn't this something worthy of rejoicing about when she found one? Now she has the, the whole, all 10 back together? Yeah, I can kind of see that. Now, now look at this lost son. He was lost and then he backed it. Whoa, what the? No, no, no. This would have been appalling to them. Even as he's leading them along, this is what would have been like the punch in the gut saying, whoa, 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 I can't go that far. Where are you coming from and where are you going? Because this, this does not make sense. 
So let's jump into this story and let's just, I'm going to run through it. And um, this is kind of like the tricky part. When we're reading scripture, that was um, our stories of what transpired, uh, sometimes up to 2,000, even more long ago for the Old Testament. We have to um, kind of illustrate what was originally meant. So now we have to translate it into our time. So I'm going to kind of pause and show and, and, and demonstrate what they would have been hearing as they're listening to this story. So it starts here in verse 11, if you want to read along. It says that there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Right there, all of a sudden, there would have been gasps from the Pharisees. As soon as he said that there was a man who had two sons, and the younger one asked for his share of the estate, whoa, what is going on here? See, right off the, off the bat, that younger son asking for his share in the estate was basically him rejecting his father, saying, I want nothing to do with you. All I want is what you can give me. The only value I see in you is your things, what you can give me. He's basically cutting his dad off, saying, you mean nothing to me. Just give me my stuff. And what would have been even more appalling is this. He de- so the father divided his property between them. He actually allowed it to happen. He didn't have to do that. He could have cast him off and said, you just made your choice. You drew a line in the sand. You said you are not part of this family. I accept that. Go. But he allowed it to happen. Verse 13. Not long after that, the young son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And then after he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Boom, another punch in the gut right there. Another shocker because pigs were seen as, as this was um, an animal that would cause you to be defiled. You do not touch pigs. They were unclean. You don't eat them. You don't touch them. You don't work with them. The Jews dealt with sheep. Pigs were, were unacceptable. So now all of a sudden, this son who had already cast away and rejected his family, now he finds himself in this place where he's dealing with something that was completely unclean. But it gets worse. Look at verse 16. And then he was so desperate that he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. See, not only had he fell to a level where he's... he's hanging out and caring for these pigs, but he was even lower than that because he couldn't even eat the food that the pigs ate. He was lower than this unclean animal. But when he came to his senses, he finally said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Another shocking turn in this story where the father sees the son in the distance and he recognizes the figure. And not does, he doesn't go to his table and say, how am I going to handle this? I never saw this coming. 
He doesn't go and say, make an account, okay, I gave him this and this and this. This is all gonna, if he wants to live here again, he's gonna have to pay me back everything I gave him. No, no. He sees the son, and as soon as he recognizes him, he takes up his garments together and begins to bolt in his direction, which is another shameful thing to do. You don't, a man who is older and honorable does not run. In this place, he sees the, the son shamefully coming to own up to his mistakes. And instead of emphasizing the shame of the son, he takes shame upon his own self to go and welcome that son. He goes out of his way to let that son know, you have been missed. You are loved. We're going to pick right back up where we left off before you left the family. But now, as the father is embracing and kissing him, in verse 21, it says, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And notice this, but the father said to his servants, the father completely ignores what his, what the plea that his son was giving him, trying to say, give his confession and say sorry. No, no, no. Father doesn't have time for that. You're here. That's what's important now. You're here. This is all I've wanted. This is all I've longed for and prayed for. You're here. I just want you. Forget all that. He ignores the, the son's confessions and says, quick, bring the best robe, the sign of honor. Put a ring on his finger, the, the sign of his position in the family. You are part of us a position of authority in that family, in that household. Put a ring on the finger, sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's, let's have a feast. We're going to celebrate that you're here. Forget, yeah, you were gone, but you're here now. That's all that matters. You're here now. You're home. We're whole again. Our family isn't missing someone anymore. Now we're back together. Now we're where we belong. This is reason to celebrate. It's interesting here that Jesus is using a feast again in this illustration because it was only a few verses earlier when he's talking about the parable of the great feast. He goes on in verse 24, For the son of mine was dead, but he's alive now. He was lost, but now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Uh, 25, yeah, let's go to 27. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. But when he came to the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. This is all the father has longed for for all of these years. It wasn't the son's rejection of the family that he was concentrating on. No, he wasn't concentrating on that. It wasn't even the separateness, being separated. It was all about being reunited. He longed to have him back where he was in the beginning. And so he received him with open arms and said nothing about the rebellion, That said nothing about his time away. He didn't, he didn't stop and ask him, have you learned your lesson, son, in all this time that you've been gone? He didn't ask him if he planned to pay him back or what his plans for the future was. All that matters is there together. All that matters is restoration is being experienced. It was his son. It was his son. The one that ran away and wandered off. It was him that brought up his own sin. And the father quickly brushes it off and continues to pour out his acts of love and and redemption, reminding him, you belong in this family. That's never changed, no matter what you've tried to do. See, looking back, I think I've seen this at times, even in my own self. In times where, in occasions where I've gone my own way or outside of God's will, 
and I come to realize it and face him, I want to address my sorrows and expound upon how sorry I am and how I realize how wrong I was. But all I find is Jesus right there simply wrapping his arms around me, his comfort there. Somehow, instinctively, in our flesh, we feel that there's an angry God waiting to punish us. And then if we can endure that punishment long enough, maybe, just maybe, we can find ourselves back in his graces. That's not godly thinking. That's not God. That's not his character. It's just not who he is. He's not angry. He does not desire any kind of sacrifice from that. He gave his own sacrifice. So for us to make our sacrifices to try to get in his favor is only an insult, as if his sacrifice for us wasn't enough. When we look at these three stories together, and we look at the scripture as this whole, we see something here that I think oftentimes gets overlooked. Each of these stories tell about something that had been gone, and really it's about a whole that was broken, a group that suffered loss because something went missing. Each of these groups of things, the sheep, the coins, and then even this family, they weren't whole when that one thing went missing. They weren't complete anymore. I was talking to my family about this a few days ago, and it was my daughter. who We were talking about the, the rejoicing that each group would have when they found what was lost. And, and uh, Arabella pointed this out. She's like, I think they're rejoicing because now you know, God wants a complete set. They belong together. Even beyond that one coming, it's not that one is any more important than the other, but everyone is hugely significant because without one, we're not whole. If one goes missing, it's not complete. If one goes astray, we are not what we once were. We don't belong apart, but together. These stories are emphasizing togetherness. And how important that is to Jesus. And how the father, the woman with the coin, the shepherd, all they stopped what they were doing to bring things back together that once were together, but then there was a part, there was a separation, there was a break. Everything stops until we're back together. This is what matters to the heart of God. He wants us together with him. That's what causes great rejoicing. You notice that when each of these things was found, the rejoicing began not out in the field where they, where they received, received the sun, not out where they found the sheep, but once they were led back and brought back together, once they were whole, now the rejoicing begins because that's where we belong. So Jesus shows us this with this family together, reunited, at joyful, at perfect peace. Well, almost at perfect peace. See it? As the feast that the father had prepared, as it was starting, this is where the older brother starts to come into the field, and he hears something that he doesn't hear every day. He hears music playing, the sound of people rejoicing and dancing and having fun. He's like, what? what's going on over here? And he learns what's happening, and he's not happy about it. Verse 28 tells us what happened. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. When I think about this feast and how he had invited um, his, all, all of the family, including the older brother, all, this, they all belong here. I'm thinking about 
we have to think about this feast that Jesus just finished telling the people about. Everyone's invited. Who chooses to come? Who chooses to stay away? He refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice he still says that his brother is no longer part of his family. He's still dead to him. When this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. What's interesting is this. As the son comes, the older son comes from the field and he refuses to go into the party, the father sees him and he reacts to the, old, to the older son the same way that he reacted to the young one when he returned. He saw him in the distance and he ran to him. Well, now he sees the older brother standing outside the house and he runs to him and pleads, you belong here. We're only whole together. Come, be with us. Celebrate. We have to celebrate. Everything I have is already yours. He's taken his share. This is everything you see as far as you can look. It's all yours. Why would you withhold this celebration? We're whole again. It's not about these things. It's about us, son. It's about us being a family. It's about us being together. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't accept the invitation. He couldn't get past the fact that this son had thrown his family in the trash and ran away. His brother rejected the family. That's all he needed to know. He didn't want to talk or discuss anything further. And so he stayed outside of that party. It's interesting to note here too, notice this. The younger brother, when he came to his senses as he was far away taking care of these pigs, he almost didn't come back and be reunited with his family because his judgment upon his own self. Ah, maybe, maybe if I go and plead with my father, maybe he'll let me be a servant. I could never be in the family again. I've disowned them, but maybe he'll let me just be a servant. Maybe he'll just pay me a daily wage so I can actually have some food. His own judgment on himself almost kept him back from being part of the family again. But now we look at the older brother, and the older brother can't get past the fact that his younger brother was a screw-up and disowned the whole family. And so now he's judging his younger brother. And now because of his judgment on his brother, he can't get past it and he can't enter the feast. The younger brother's judging himself and almost misses out. The older brother is judging his, the other brother and does miss out. All the while, the father casts no judgment on either of them. The father is not one who judges. The father is one who invites and say, just accept my son. Just accept my messenger. Just accept me. I want you. This is our God. That's all he cares about. That's all that matters. I just want you. 
Forget looking at your performance and forget looking at the performance and the behaviors of those around you. Stop casting judgment and just receive. Just come to this feast because you belong. Don't worry about who's invited because you are, and that's all that matters. You are wanted. Don't worry about who's around you. See, sometimes we get this perception of like, okay, I get this. God wants me. I'm accepted. Um, let, me, let me go in within, within sight. Who, who's there? And, then, and, and that's as close as we want to come. He's found us. He's revealed himself to us. We accept him. Now we're followers of Christ. And as we're following his lead, we, once we finally get to that, oh, oh, he's leading us together. There's other people there too. Ooh, I don't know how I feel about that. I thought it was just me and you, Jesus. What, what's this? Who, who's in there? It's almost like we want to go up to the window and look through, who else is in there? I'm going to see if I want to be part of this or not. No, that's not how it works. Because we belong together. We belong together. We're not whole without every single one of us. See, at some point, many of us have been in the shoes of really both of these brothers, judging others or judging ourselves more harshly than Jesus even does struggling with emotions and temptations that come. Isaiah 53, 53 verse 6 says this, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Holy Spirit within us is continually reminding us He is not about condemnation. He is the one who wants us even more than we want our own selves. Jesus is the one, as it says, who has come to seek and save that which is lost. That's his mission, to bring back together and reunite what was once united, but then was blown up and broken apart, belonging back together. This story is about reunification. This story is about coming together. It's about connection. It's about being one. See, the father is calling his son to the feast. And the question we have to think about is this. Is the father going to stay talking with the older brother the whole time while the party is going on and, and now leave all of the guests and the family absent from his own presence? It's his party. He's the host. He comes out and he's pleading with the older brother, come, we have to go. Come, listen, we got to go. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about how he is the good shepherd and, and his sheep know his voice. See, his voice is leading us somewhere. He's moving us somewhere. We don't come to faith in Christ and then we just sit. Still, his voice is taking us somewhere. The father is pleading, come, come, the, the party's this way. You belong here. We have to go. It's time now. The time is short. Let's go. He's moving. When we hear that voice, we have to move with him. We have to respond. To refuse to follow that voice, to refuse to come together, to refuse to, to cast judgment, is to refuse to follow the voice of the good shepherd who's leading us together. I think it's interesting, too, in John 10, 16, where Jesus is talking about this idea of sheep, and he said, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They, too, will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. We don't know the whole story. All we know is the part that we need to know. We belong together with Christ. That's all that we need to know. And he handles all the details. He takes care of all the provisions and just says, just come. And he's determined to pursue us and bring each one of us back to the family. See, togetherness is Jesus' goal. 
put together, simply in one word, togetherness is what he's after. This is what he values. This is what he values in us. And his, his spirit within us pleads, come along the whole way. Follow me into the midst of the family and be together. Fostering connection among your brothers and your sisters. Celebrate one another's wins. Share in one another's losses. Be one. Be one. See, over and above perfection and performance, Jesus just wants us to accept him together and to live in harmony with one another. Those that we easily get along with, as well as the ones who test our patience and make us question whether they are even fit to be part of the family if we want to be identified with them. See, many of God's people, many of the sheep who, who hear the voice, they're hearing his call, they see him, he's in view, are still far from the feast. Because even in one another's presence, even in one another's presence, we're physically all here in one room. But are we together? Or are we still apart? Are we genuinely connected or is there just mild familiarity? Sometimes instead of a Christ-centered joy and, and harmony amongst the body of believers, there is discord, there is distance, there is lacking. And he pleads with us, come together. We all belong feasting and celebrating together, but the feasting happens once we are all back together. This is where we belong. So the challenge for us is this, to hear the Spirit of the Lord who is calling us to himself and we recognize that it's not just him who's going to be there. There are going to be other people there. And we may or may not have a favorable disposition towards that person. Some people we'll love and naturally get along with. Other people are going to rub us the wrong way. But we are not the ones to disqualify them. And far be it from us to miss out on the whole celebration simply because there are some people that are a little bit harder for our particular personality to get along with. We belong together. Jesus is a deeper bond than any of these superficiality differences, superficial differences that we have. We got to come together. We got to be together. These stories that Jesus is emphasizing come together. Be healed, be one, and now be ambassadors inviting others in. See, because once we're there, every day we have opportunity to show and point the way the feast is that way. Here it is. They're all invited. He wants us together. And he wants us to be ambassadors for the celebration that he has prepared for each one of us. Let's pray together. God, you are a good and loving father. And I thank you that you are a father who, who seeks no judgment. As a matter of fact, you oppose those who judge us. And so, Lord, may you search our hearts and any judgment that you find in our hearts, either against ourselves or against our brother or sister, any judgment you find in our hearts, God, I pray that you would speak against them, break that off of us. You oppose judgment. So, Lord, will you break any judgment off of us so that we now can not only see you, but we see one another 
the way you see us. So that when we see one another, we will run and embrace and welcome one another. That when we encounter hardship, we will continue to move towards it and not run away, knowing that it is all following your voice. It's all in submission to the place you're leading us to. And you will be glorified. You will have your family one with you. Thank you for the invitation to celebrate you and with you. And today, Lord, we are your children. We are your people. Make us one, even as you, Jesus, and the Father are one. And be glorified in this way. May your love be what binds us together. And may your love in us be what draws the world who don't yet know you unto you, God. We want them to know you too. We want all of the family together, not just some, not just the ones that we know and like now today, but all of your children to be together to celebrate your glory, your goodness, and who we are as a family. We give these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.